3: Welcome. Happy Monday. Happy Monday, April 11th. It is now pretty much mid-April, if you will believe it. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Welcome to the program. The Michelle Miao Show is your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. Just to remind you, all of the content that, uh, that I do here... The podcasts, um, the RSS feed, and even the television shows are posted at michellemeow.com, and I sure do welcome your invitation to be friends on social media. (laughs) Sounds so weird, right? No, not really. I love being connected. Um, Anyway, it's mid-April already, and uh, so that's mid-April 2016. Which I'm sure a lot of you are scrambling or maybe not scrambling. You've already followed that extension, but it seems like a lot of people are uber stressed uh, that April 15th deadline, your tax deadline is this week. It's looming around. So, hey, make sure you get your taxes <laughs> done or file that extension. Um, I've pretty much have been kind of like uh, all over the place uh, this weekend did not feel like a weekend. It's been crazy. My life feels like a scene from waiting to exhale, except there's a lesbian character in it now, and that lesbian would be me. I have more to tell. So I, uh, I guess stay tuned and I'll talk about, you know, what that all means. Um I am excited that we will be interviewing Susan Sarandon later this afternoon. Everyone, uh, it's funny because the first thing that people bring up when I say yes, that's where I'm headed this afternoon. They want me to ask about the, uh, I'd vote I'd rather vote for Donald Trump versus Hillary um, Clinton. <laughs> That's why Susan Sarandon has been in the news, not for all the incredible movies um, that she makes, but because of her political statements. So we'll see. We'll see if I have the courage to ask and we'll see if she even answers for me. She's probably tired of talking about that. Let's get today's show started. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit pacificfertilitycenter.com. So, you know, it's nothing that uh, we haven't heard before, but uh, religious conservative organizations and anti-gay leaders have been saying what an abomination homosexuality is, and it is um, it is not Christian-like to lay with another man. And, uh, you know, because of these reasons, because it was cited in a, a book in the Bible, um, those are the reasons why some Christians do not support homosexuality um, I guess homosexuality, I should say LGBTQI rights. So I think it's perfect timing to have this conversation uh, for today since all of these religious freedom bills are passing. And uh, I think, you know, hopefully the outcome of it is that you see there's also diversity in religious beliefs and ideologies. So I'd like to welcome our next guest, uh, Stephen Morris, who has a new important book out, When Brothers Dwell in Unity, Byzantine Christianity and Homosexuality. So Stephen, welcome to the program.
4: Thank you, Michelle. How are you? Ah, uh,
3: all over the place. <laughs> I spoke to you not too long ago, and it just—it feels like a tornado is coming through San Francisco. Which I should knock on wood because the weather has been so extreme. Anything can happen. You never know.
4: Yes, you never know. Just here in New York, it's been seventy degrees and then snowing <laughs>
3: <laughs> in April.
4: In April, who knew?
3: Who knew? I know. Well, speaking of, you know, um, extremes, uh, you know, I, I feel like in Christianity, there's a lot of extreme thinkings and thoughts and beliefs, and so um, I'm very excited to have you on the program and walk us through this. Not not all of our listeners obviously are, are very skilled or knowledgeable when it comes to studying religion, but you had actually studied uh, uh, Byzantine and medieval history and theology at Yale, um, so you know, you know a lot about this. Let's let's touch base on this new book that you have out, "When Brothers Dwell in Unity: Byzantine Christianity and Homosexuality." Let's start with uh, explaining even to our listeners of uh, what exactly is Byzantine Christianity.
4: Uh, Yes. When Christianity developed in the Middle East and then spread from there, uh, the apostles and the first uh, generations of Christians spoke Greek primarily in the eastern Mediterranean area and Latin in the western Mediterranean area. And at first, they were one church, and they were able to hold these cultural and linguistic tensions uh, together. Uh, But gradually, over several hundred years, uh, these tensions began to be um, more and more extreme. And then when Constantine uh, legalized Christianity in the year 313 uh, for the first time and began to support Christianity, the Christian Church as a, as a state entity, uh, he moved the capital of the Roman Empire from Rome uh, in Italy to a new city, Constantinople, uh, on the eastern Mediterranean coast. And there was a, a, a further tension then added to the uh, cultural and linguistic uh, tensions between there was a political tension now between Old Rome in Italy and New Rome uh, in the eastern Mediterranean, which is now Turkey. Um, so, gradually, the, the, the Church uh, began to fracture, and this fracturing, and uh, this division, was a process rather than one single event, but it began to, to be really noticeable uh, in the 7-800s, and it was a, pretty much a, uh, got an accomplished fact by 1204 when the Knights of Western Europe ca- uh, came on the Fourth Crusade and sacked Constantinople in 1204. So that pretty much by then, it was definitively two churches: the Greek-speaking Byzantine Church in the East, and the Latin-speaking uh, Roman Church in the West. And the Byzantine Church, the Greek-speaking Church, then spread further east and north, up into areas we now call Russia, and further east into uh, Arabia and Asia, and the in Northern Africa, um, the Northern African. Uh, areas were lost to the conquest of the Muslims in the seventh and eighth century. Um, but then the the, the church flourished uh, further north and, and east in the, in the Greek and Russian speaking areas. And so when we talk about Byzantine Christianity, that's really what we're talking about. What what became eventually known as the Greek and the Russian Orthodox Church.
3: So interesting considering where we're at today um, when we're, we're talking about, you know, certain areas or geographical locations of uh, Byzantine Christianity. Um, now let's touch on homosexuality and going back thousands and thousands and thousands of years in which you, you talk about in your book, When Brothers Dwell in Unity. Um, obviously, it was not considered homosexuality, homosexuality but what was it considered?
4: I uh, know, I wish it were as simple as looking up homosexuality. Right. <laughs> the text the text that you uh, need to research for this are very explicit, what they're talking about. And so you're, uh, uh, they're not meant to be titillating, but they're very explicit. And you've got, always got this constant buzz going on in the back of your head. So you, every once in a while, you need to take a 15-minute break, go take a cold shower or something. <laughs> <laughs> Just think about something else. You know, clear your mind of all these images, because they're very specific about sexual positions and stuff parents and who does what to who and
3: well I'm very thankful
4: behavior I'm very
3: thankful <laughs> you went through all of that for us <laughs> which is why you put the book together um, but yeah so let's 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 talk about that I mean what was it specifically then?
4: Yes, well, they, they didn't use uh, the word homosexuality, because that right. wasn't invented till the 1800s. They didn't even use the word sodomy, because that wasn't invented until the 1100s in the Latin-speaking West. And sodomy really meant, originally, anything other than heterosexual missionary position sex. Sodomy meant almost anything you wanted— uh, it meant a woman on top of her husband. It meant uh, two men together. It meant um, it could mean rape. It could mean consensual sex. It could it was a really catch-all phrase, and even in the fourth century, uh, to to talk about the sin of Sodom was generally to talk about inhospitality. There's um, very few references to the, to the behavior of the sodomites in the Old Testament, and and lay, uh, associating it specifically with desire of an adult man for another adult man. Uh, in fact, in the in the Byzantine world, the the quintessential irresistible sexual object was considered a beardless boy, a, a young a, a, a boy, a young man whose beard really hadn't come in fully yet, mm. or a eunuch and so the angels were often depicted as eunuchs and therefore the desire of the men of Sodom for the eunuchs was considered like an, a standard uh behavior like uh, in fact in monasteries it was considered like uh, a normal thing for two adult monks to maybe develop a relationship and they got a slap on the wrist and said told don't do that again but for the the monastic rules are very clear that no beardless boy, no uh, young man whose beard hadn't fully come in yet was to be admitted as a novice to the monastery because you couldn't expect a grown monk to behave himself in the presence of such an irresistible young man. And so rather than tell the adult monks to behave themselves, the monastic authorities thought it was more realistic just to tell the beardless boys don't come in the front door until you're uh, older than 20 or 21.
3: Wow. <laughs> So fascinating.
4: (laughs) It was a real surprise to me. The, the, the idea of what, con- of what constituted adulthood also was very different. A, a beautiful boy began to you know th- th- began that stage in his life uh when you lose your baby teeth, which is usually around seven, and nobody nowadays thinks of a kid losing their first tooth as becoming an adult. Mm-hmm. but that w- becoming an adult was a seven to ten year process that began when you lost your first baby tooth. And was finished finally when all your adult teeth were in, and your and in, for men, uh, your, your beard had turned from peach fuzz into real whiskers.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know what's interesting is that you're you're discussing it, and uh, we can absolutely see this it being an acknowledgement of same-sex attraction. And it was not, it wasn't like it was you know shameful to to find um these young men beautiful whether male female
4: no it was totally uh, a norm it was to to say that a boy was beautiful was redundant it was kind of like saying marilyn monroe was mm-hmm. gorgeous <laughs> who wouldn't throw themselves mm-hmm. at such a person
3: mhm and you mentioned this earlier but uh you know the the actual sex acts um and um having the the sexual desire for for you know the beautiful men and 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 then acting upon that, I mean, was it common?
4: Well, from what we can tell, uh, it was certainly common in, in certain circumstances. A classical Greek education that really continued to be sought after for many centuries certainly involved pederasty. The the tutor was expected to have a sexual relationship with the student, and part and. To show him how an adult man behaves and this and how how a gentleman behaves and and how a gentleman treats his partner in social and sexual situations, and we Know that one early one preacher in the fourth century uh, was very disturbed by this. He wrote a book, uh, a series of pamphlets that became a book, uh, supporting the, the monks in the hills outside of Antioch. Uh, John Chrysostom uh, said, "You should not give your sons a classical Greek education for two reasons: one, they will learn mythology instead of the gospel, and two, they will be fucked." Mm-hmm. And the, that. We know exactly that his mother scrimped and saved—his mother was a widow, uh, his father had died very early—his uh, mother scrimped and saved to give him the very best classical Greek education possible. And so later on, his John Chrysostom is one of the only preachers in 1,000, 2,000 years of Eastern Christianity to preach against uh, men— having sex with other men, and he, uh, he's known for having suffered tremendous uh, stomach problems, digestive issues as an adult, and we know now that those kind of stomach issues are often present in uh, adult survivors of childhood abuse or molestation, mm-hmm. and just given the vehemence that he, he talks about uh, Classical Greek education practices uh, and his own uh, stomach issues. It seems inescapable to me that he certainly was used, uh, probably unwillingly, in a sexual relationship with his tutor, um, and that th- that kind of education continued to to be sought after for another two or three hundred years after that, um, despite his protests.
3: Mm. Mm, Very, very, very fascinating. I'm so hooked (laughs) on this interview. Uh, We're going to take a quick break right here. But when we come back, we'll continue our discussion with Stephen Morris. He's the author of a new book, When Brothers Dwell in Unity, Byzantine Christianity and Homosexuality. Don't go away. Come right back.
0: You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at progressivevoices.com.
5: Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family.
0: G R E C A R E dot com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show.
3: Welcome back! Thank you so much for joining me here on this Monday, April eleventh. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Our special guest on the phone with us today is Stephen Morris, who's the author of "When Brothers Dwell in Unity: Byzantine Christianity and Homosexuality." So, Stephen, just right before the break, we uh, touched on an Archbishop who, um, you know, basically was very much against the what. We're calling in today's time homosexual acts or sex acts um I wanted to ask I wanted to follow up on that before we move on, you know with him uh, I guess going against the grain and and uh, showing some signs of what I would consider you know homophobia did did was was he uh was he effective at all
4: well, evidently not <laughs> it's yeah. hard to know exactly how his congregation heard him uh but the fact that um nobody else was talking like this and nobody else preached like that it didn't catch on that that kind of attitude didn't catch on and in fact the rules that developed uh, in the in the years uh, following him were, were very surprisingly lenient given how strident his his preaching was as as time went on uh, the penances assigned to uh, adult men who were found having sex with other adult men uh, sound draconian to our ears, 15 years, 18 years of of suspension from communion. Uh, But when you put that in the context of what other behaviors were being penanced at that time, uh, sex between men was getting a relative slap on the wrist. Uh, For a straight couple to be caught having sex outside of marriage uh, got... Penances that were even more uh, strident, more draconian, and people who got married a second or a third time following divorce or widowhood uh, had even more extreme penances assigned. In the Mm -hmm. 6th century, um, these penances were uh, simplified and uh, restructured somewhat, but still uh, adultery and fornication, which were often euphemisms for a second or a third marriage, got penances of... Uh, Three years, uh, five years, suspension from communion, uh, a vegan diet, which was unusual—it sounds chic now, but it was unusual (laughs) then—and a a regimen of prostrations uh, and certain daily prayer uh, practices, whereas men who were caught having sex with other men uh, were told to uh, abstain from communion for a week in some places or 80 days. In other places certainly much less time than straight couples who were found uh, in flagrante delecto doing things that they ought not to have done.
3: Mm-hmm. It's interesting, you know, today in which um, extreme Christians who are anti-gay have uh, been somewhat successful in rejecting homosexuality, calling it unnatural that it shouldn't or doesn't exist. Um, you know, as yeah, you know, especially when it comes to marriage, that marriage traditionally right. is between a, a man and a woman. And so, you know, with th- this information and the extensive research that you've done, <laughs> I mean, how how did we get here? Uh, and, uh, since when in our history did the tides turn and all of a sudden, um, you know, especially Christians, and, uh, where did we get to the place where we forgot about this chapter in, in Christianity uh, history?
4: Well, I think there's always been a, a, a tension be- uh, between um Sexual reality, emotional reality, and legal reality. Uh, even in the days of the pre-Christian Roman Empire, it does seem that two men um, could contract marriage with each other, and that was, but that always had a legal. Uh, There were always legal difficulties with that, because in the Roman Empire, marriage was primarily about the production of legitimate children and the smooth transference of power and property from one generation to another. Clearly, that didn't happen when the couple was male. And so uh, laws developed to guarantee that the the property of one of those men reverted back to his biological family, uh, rather than passed to his male lover's family. And in the Byzantine Empire, uh, in the 4th century, the the emperor Theodosius I tried to outlaw marriage between men, uh, but it wouldn't go away. And a service developed called adelphopoia, called brother-making, literally, that originally seems to have not sanctified a sexual relationship in the 7th and 8th century, but certainly by the 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th century, the men who had an Adolfo Poya service, who had a brother-making service, certainly do seem to have had a sexual relationship. And another, and laws, again, grew up to, to guarantee that the property of one brother uh, did not transfer to his lover on his death, that the mm-hmm. property would revert back to the original blood biological family. And, and a man, in fact, in the uh, Byzantine world, was not expected to have much of an emotional relationship with his wife. Men and women were had very different educational backgrounds, even aristocratic, uh, well-placed so- lim- uh, women in society. A woman could rule the Byzantine Empire, unlike in, the, in Western Europe, but it was very unusual uh, for most women to have uh, much uh, business experience or, or life in the world. Uh, and so a man's prim- primary... Uh, a man's primary emotional relationships would be with other men. Mm. And if that spilled over into a sexual relationship, that happened, and the Byzantines kind of shrugged and accepted it. Um, But as marriage itself changed, I think, uh, it became more of an emotional relationship. But uh, then um, a man was expected to find his primary emotional uh, resources with his wife. But really, that's only in the last hundred years. Maybe one hundred and fifty years at mm-hmm. most, um, so the idea that uh, marriage by in and of itself uh, precludes uh, any kind of uh, same sex couples uh, is really a very relatively modern idea
3: mm-hmm. let's talk about uh, russia I mean you had mentioned Russia um, earlier in talking about you know the history uh, the relationship of Byzantine um Christianity and here we are in today's time in which um someone like Putin has been successful yes. in uh you know pretty much passing laws uh anti-gay laws uh everything from propaganda to to the the physical being of of being homosexual um right I you know it, it, how does someone like that a leader like that uh, I mean I can only imagine a book like yours would be uh, dangerous for someone like Putin.
4: Uh, I think it would be dangerous for Putin, and it uh, unfortunately is dangerous for anyone who could benefit by it. I think I think mm-hmm. when brothers dwell in unity, would be considered gay propaganda, and you could get into a lot of trouble if you're caught with a copy in in the uh, in contemporary Russia. Um, I think that somebody like Putin has a lot of anti-gay law has, has engineered a lot of anti-gay laws on the books, but most of the time, from what we can tell, they're not enforced. Mm -hmm. And the Byzantine Empire, similarly, had a lot of laws on the books that they never intended to use unless unless you decided that you needed to get rid of somebody for some reason. And then you would have this arsenal of laws at your disposal, and you could use one of those laws as a weapon to get rid of your political enemies. Um, the Soviet Union certainly excelled in that. They had a lot of laws that they didn't necessarily enforce until they decided they wanted to get rid of you for some other reason. And so then they would use one of the laws, um, whichever one was handiest, uh, in order to to get rid of you, to send you to the Gulag, mm-hmm. or, or worse. Um, so I think there's... There's a a deep strain of resentment and antagonism in Russian culture against the other. And who that other is can vary from time to time and place to place. But there's always been a a very strong sense of us versus them. And I think Putin's um, laws are are part and parcel of that uh, cultural construct, that he's very eager to identify who's us and who's them, and then, when someone uh, strays outside of the political politically acceptable boundaries, he uses those laws as a hammer to get rid of them.
3: Mm-hmm. I wanted to follow up on that question, and you know, as marriage equality right now is uh, well, I I shouldn't say right now, but in the last few years, especially here in the United States, now that we have full federal marriage equality, uh, yes. that seems to be a controversial topic that still continues till this day. What has been the response uh, to your book?
1: Well, and
4: the reviews have been really enthusiastic. I was so gratified that some of the the, the top scholars in uh, the late antique and Byzantine worlds have come out very supportive. Uh, Claudia Rapp, who's one of the leading experts on the history of the Brotherhood service, has uh, said very. She's been very supportive of my book. Wendy Meyer, who's one of the leading scholars in the life and uh, experience of John Chrysostom, has been very enthusiastic about my book. Matthew Keffler, who wrote a book about eunuchs and the idea of masculinity in the Western Roman Empire, has been very enthusiastic and supportive of my book. And, very, and individual readers have said how grateful they were to, that this offered hope that they, the people who are especially very religious had been very conflicted mm-hmm. and did not see a way out of their uh, quandary. Um, I think uh, but it hasn't been out that long. So I think mm-hmm. as it gets more noticed, it will spark more and more discussion. And I'm looking forward to that discussion to be to what very often the so-called traditionalists and the conservatives like to say is that you can't change history and mm-hmm. history is on our side. Right. And they're right. You can't change history, but history is not necessarily on their side. And I think that well, my book is the first time anyone's actually put together in one place all the different aspects of Byzantine Christian culture, the monastic rules, the civil laws, the church rules, the sermons, the liturgical practice, and look at all of them together to see what do they say about same-sex desires, same-sex relationships, and... I think that's going to upset a lot of people. That history is not what they thought it was, and the rules are not what they thought they are, or, or what they think they should be. And I think that that will be um, that'll shake a lot of boats. But I'm looking forward to uh, to that discussion, and hopefully, you know, providing the bishops uh, a language uh, for charting a way forward. Because you can't plan- you can't know where you're going until you know where you've been.
3: Well, I look forward to sharing this incredible book with everyone I know and uh, and if you're, you know, part of the media, please reach out to Stephen. I think he would be uh, so incredible to talk to, you. but I also think that eventually if it hit it gets a, uh, you know, into the hands of someone like Pat Robertson, it would be it would be great is to to have a debate between you and someone like Pat Robertson or some big, you know, Christian fundamental leader. <laughs>
4: yes. <laughs> yes. Because, yes, I I that would be wonderful because very often what they, what, what, um, conservatives, quote, unquote, or traditionalists, uh, like to do is like, t- take the t- biblical text as if it were in a vacuum. and, it, you can't be separated from it. thousands of years of interpretive history and how it's been dealt with in the past and how other people have examined it and, and lived with it and wrestled with it. Mm-hmm. And to somehow say, we're the first people to ever stumble on this text and that we're the first ones to try to grapple with it, is just not true. And and we, lo- we lose most of the message of the biblical text and, and the history of, of Christian life if we don't look at how other people have dealt with these things in the past and build on their experience,
3: Stephen, thank you so much for spending time with us today and for sharing this this very we need this book, this book, this very important book. Thank you.:
4: Thank you so much, Michelle.
3: Pick up a copy of Stephen's book. It is When Brothers Dwell in Unity, Byzantine Christianity Christianity and Homosexuality. And I can imagine it is available on Amazon and is written by Stephen Morris. Don't go away. The show continues right after this.
0: You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Like us on Facebook and share us with your friends. Find out more at Facebook.com slash Progressive Voices.
3: The Spotlight on Success and Achievement goes to LGBTQI members of the Bay Area who have demonstrated an incredible amount of success. We're very proud to announce that this month's Spotlight on Success and Achievement is Rick Welts.
2: Well, it's been an unbelievable stretch of time, obviously. Uh, Everything the Warriors have gone through this season, really a magical season that ended in a championship. uh, and now, to, to top it off a week later with the opportunity to participate in the Pride Parade in San Francisco, it's a, it's a pretty wonderful time. You know, it's been a journey, right? We're all on our own personal journeys, and uh, the last four years has been a remarkable part of my life, but it, it's definitely a part of my life. Uh, you know, the decisions I made four years ago to come out in the way that I did, obviously, you know, I had decided I was signing up for something going forward and being part of the discussion. Uh, and, you know, I welcome that and this is, uh, you know, for me a real honor to, to be participating in this way and I guess in, in some ways it, it will be a demonstration of how far professional sports has come in, in a very short period of time. Uh, not as far as our society has come, so I think we have a lot to celebrate. Wow, I, I don't think I have any secrets. I don't think I'm that mysterious. You know, I've got a, a pretty simple life. I like pretty simple things. Uh, you know, I've, I've got a great partner, his name's Todd Gage. Uh, he has two wonderful children, a 14-year-old girl and a 10-year-old boy. I, I uh, got off the parade route, got into a car with them, we drove to Lake Tahoe, and I got to watch 14-year-old girls play four soccer games over the course of the weekend and then drive back to the Bay Area. So that's my idea of an exciting weekend, you know, spending it with the kids and my partner and getting to do, you know, the most basic things that any family would get to do spotlight on success and achievement presented by wells fargo together we'll go far
0: and now back to the michelle meow show
3: welcome back thank you so much for joining here uh joining me here on this monday april 11th i'm michelle meow your host our next guest is the executive director of an incredible nonprofit organization that reaches out to HIV AIDS patients and has been in the San Francisco Bay Area and, uh, and operating since the 80s. And so let's welcome Michael Smithwick to the program. Michael, welcome. Thank you, Michelle. So let's talk about your organization. I, I might say this wrong, but I believe it's uh, Tree.
1: Maitri. Yes. Maitri means compassionate friendship in Sanskrit, and our, our origins are in the Buddhist community. Uh, we started uh, here in the Castro of uh, district of San Francisco at uh, the Zen uh, facility on Hartford Street, um, gosh, back in 87 when the epidemic was really uh, ugly, uh, when there wasn't a lot of hope and there was a lot of despair.
3: Hmm. And have you been with the organization since, or
1: I've been with the organization a little bit more than five years. Oh, great! Um, so, um, but long enough to love it and to see firsthand the incredible work that's uh, done here for the community. Of
3: course, of course. I'm sure that uh, there are lots of people that you touch on a daily basis who can also um, contribute. You know, to to our understanding of where we're at with HIV-AIDS today versus where we were in 1987. Um, What would you say, you know, would be the most rewarding aspect of being involved with Maitri?
1: Gosh, um, Maitri is at the um, nexus of life and death. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's what the AIDS epidemic, unfortunately, has been for so long. Um, in the early days, we were a hospice, plain and simple. Uh, it was a place where people could go to spend their final days, weeks, months uh, with dignity, with care, uh, surrounded by people that were non judgmental and were loving. Uh, and that definitely continues today, um, both with our staff and our volunteers. Um, the big thing that's changed, though, is the epidemic itself. So, whereas originally, um, pretty much everyth- everyone that came to my tree was looking at the same outcome, uh, ultimately, death. Uh, now, gosh, two-thirds, maybe mm-hmm. even sometimes three-quarters of those we bring in were able to medically stabilize to the point where we can discharge them back to independent living. Uh, so uh, very, very positive in, in that respect. Um, you had asked me you know, what what my personal feelings on it. I derive, frankly, as odd as it may sound, just as much satisfaction from helping someone with our staff, of course, delivering most of the direct care, helping someone who was at a life-and-death situation, looking very grim to turn them around and and return them to health where they can Mm -hmm. be discharged. But there's just as much that I derive emotionally from helping people who are too far gone, uh, who often are coming to us homeless, having lived on the street, suffering with HIV, and all that you might imagine goes with that, uh, to h- provide a dignified, non judgmental, comfortable, very home like place uh, to spend their final, as I said, days, weeks, or months uh, mm-hmm. before they pass.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, you know, San Francisco, uh, everybody's talking about San Francisco in this way in which it's really uh, bubbled up to be the tech capital and everybody's doing financially well. And uh, even when we are referencing HIV AIDS or the HIV AIDS community, a lot of people talk about, you know, access and resources. And while I truly genuinely believe we, of course, have more um, resources and people have access to that now, uh, what we failed to talk about is the fact that you know there is income disparity that's happening here in San Francisco um as well as uh, those who have don't ha- have very limited means or access to such resources and i think Maitri talks to that community in helping some of our most marginalized and most vulnerable right
1: absolutely yeah uh, about 70% of the residents uh, that are here at Maitri are also challenged beyond just well beyond Advanced HIV challenged with um, uh, cancers, um, other illnesses that would affect their health beyond HIV, the compromised immune system just makes it more challenging. Also, mental health uh, disorders and substance abuse um, histories. So uh, we're dealing with all three uh, with many of our residents, and it makes it even more challenging to deliver that compassionate care that really is so needed.
3: Mm-hmm. And when you're talking to the bigger resources who are obvious, you know, who have a, a bigger financial, I say, budget and, um, and and the HIV AIDS community, I think there's a lot of money going into um, prevention, uh, you know, for someone like you who is the executive director of an organization that's there. And this, this, you know, I don't mean to use this word, but at the who's there at the end, and so it seems. Yeah. Um, does it ever get frustrating to be in your role?
1: Uh, always frustrating <laughs> to be in dealing with HIV when you prefer that it wouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, there's always a frustration, and then of seeing people who, had they been treated earlier. You know, may have had more positive outcomes. That's that's always frustrating. I I can say, from a uh, finance perspective, that um, San Francisco, San Franciscans in general, are very fortunate. Maitre is fortunate along with the other HIV uh, organizations. The federal government has been cutting uh, funding for HIV for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And uh, in most other parts of the country, when that happens, the care just declines and declines and declines and the ability to help people of course is compromised in San Francisco however uh, the citizens here uh, have uh, voted repeatedly and our elected officials who they elect have uh, supported that um, that the taxpayers of San Francisco through the Department of Public Health uh, make up uh, traditionally what the federal government has been cutting so, you know, years ago, the federal government, rightfully so, was leading the initiative and funding to help people with HIV all around the country. Uh, and at this point, the city of San Francisco is, uh, the taxpayers of San Francisco through the Department of Public Health is funding more than the federal government, uh, at least in this area. So we're very, very fortunate to have um, a compassionate uh, population, and uh, our elected officials reflect that uh, compassion.
3: That is so, uh, you know, awesome to hear just because <laughs> I was starting to get very cynical about how people are treating others in the Bay Area. But that, that I think that that tension, you know, only comes with uh, just everything that's changed in the San Francisco Bay Area. So thank you for sharing that. Um, we, we have some great news. You've got a, an event coming up. Uh, talk to us about your event.
1: We have Bliss coming up. Uh, Bliss is our annual, um, I, I call it a mega fundraiser. It's always a lot of fun. Um, you might imagine that going to a social event and a fundraising event for an organization that deals with life and death might be somehow depressing. It is the actual opposite of that. We tend to draw supporters who are in In and of themselves, just amazing people, people who are filled with compassion and are willing and able to support us uh, in all we do for the most um, disenfranchised among us, those that are still struggling with advanced AIDS, even in this era when medications exist to prevent that.
3: Hmm. And so this uh, Bliss 2016 is coming up four o'clock Sunday, May first, at the Mission Bay Conference Center, UCSF here in San Francisco. Uh, just to let people know, and you've got like a great lineup that you know. Oh my that, god! Yeah. So talk to us about your special guests.
1: Well, first off, I'm going to do a plug for Mission Bay Conference Center. They okay. do incredible work. They are very generous with us, and they provide this fantastic facility and an incredible uh, food selection. So it's, it's not uh, like your typical fundraiser when you go and you get the rubber chicken and you feel like you've done a good thing. This is an absolutely fabulous meal uh, and a venue. Uh, we're very lucky this year, very fortunate to have Leslie Jordan, Uh, the Emmy Award-winning actor and comedian. We love Leslie. He thrilled us in Will & Grace and Sorted Lives. And I've never met him personally, but uh, as a Southern boy, I absolutely can't wait to meet him. (laughs) Uh, We also have uh, jazz vocalist Bernice McKenzie, uh, Andre Morgan, who's a local uh, performer. He's a guitarist with a fabulous voice, and also the Man Dance Ballet Company uh, will be performing uh, at Bliss.
5: Oh,
3: that is so Awesome. Um, and then people can get tickets uh, by going to the website.
1: Tickets are available at our website www.maitrisf.org. That's M-A-I-T as in Tom R-I-S-F as in San Francisco.org. And we have tickets for sale, sponsorships with benefits. Uh, we would love any support that you could provide us. or anyone, Any of your listeners would be able to for, uh, provide for us. And, of course, to have a fabulous evening uh, enjoying all this entertainment, all this good company, all this good food, and then in doing so supporting such a great organization as Maitri.
3: Michael, last question for you before we let you go. Um, your, your thoughts as far as, as hope for our future in in terms of the LGBTQ community here in San Francisco?
1: I am very, very hopeful. Uh, By the way, I am gay myself. I've been positive most of my life, so I can almost embody the mission of Maitri. The thing that uh, I'm feeling the most optimistic about are the clinical advances that are being made in HIV. And uh, San Francisco, as you probably know, has a new initiative called Getting to Zero, which is to be the first city in the country and in the world, actually, that is able to stop the spread of HIV and to uh, significantly reduce and ultimately end all deaths associated with HIV. And we're getting there. Uh, The numbers are looking great. We have great tools to do that that we didn't have before, PrEP among them. Uh, so I'm very, very uh, optimistic about what the future holds uh, for LGBTs, for San Francisco, and particularly for anyone that's uh, struggling with HIV.
3: Michael, thank you so much for for uh, sharing your time with us today, and for all the work that you do. That is so incredible, and MyTree is is lucky to have you.
1: Thank you, Michelle. Really appreciate that.
3: Visit MyTreeSF.org for tickets to their Bliss event, and uh, we'll also post that information up on the website. Don't go away. When we come back, I will discuss Waiting to Exhale and why the the second version of Waiting to Exhale should include a lesbian character. Don't go away.
0: You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at progressivevoices.com.
5: Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family.
0: g-r-e-c-a-r-e dot com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show.
3: Welcome back. Thanks so much for tuning in this Monday. Thank you to everyone at Progressive Voices Network and for, for you guys for tuning in to this awesome network that I think is the only network that provides progressive voices, which is really sad, in my opinion. Um, in San Francisco last week, or in the last couple of weeks, really, some major uh, radio networks had, well, they do what they do. They lay off a ton of people. But, uh, but this time it was incredibly bloody. Um, one of the iconic stations in the San Francisco Bay Area had laid off a majority of their local talent, And that was KGO. And the public had responded in a a lot of ways in which they were upset that some of these iconic voices were taken off um, over the air. Uh, The interesting thing is that, you know, KGO had announced that a new generation was coming and they were switching formats from news to talk radio. Well, you know, that's interesting because we know in the last few years, um, networks like Progressive Voices Network exists on the app form because... Such companies, big major radio companies, were not financially supporting progressive voices. Uh, So I was very, very interested to find out what this next generation of talk radio was going to look or sound like. And of course, you know, as they announce um, their new lineup, it includes some conservative voices. I don't understand why radio companies continue to invest and in pour money in conservative talk, even if it's a presidential election year? Who still listens to Michael Savage except the people that you really don't want in your life? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I think that that's why you know podcasting and app-based forms of like free speech, of sanity of sane people who are talk radio hosts are so important. And so I thank progressive voices so much. I mentioned right before the break that I think, you know, the the uh, the very iconic movie, Waiting to Exhale, featuring Whitney Houston, Miss Whitney, by the way, um, Angela Bassett, uh, featuring Whitney Houston and Angela Bassett, you know, that, that that movie should be recreated or should have a version 2.0 that includes a lesbian character. Um, That has kind of been my life lately in in finding out that at uh, this age, in your 30s, your friends um, start going through divorces. Uh, your family, um, start doing things that you never thought that they would do after building a life together for like two decades. Uh, And uh, that is not exclusive of the lesbian, bisexual, gay, transgender, queer community, (laughs) by the way. So it would be interesting if like the producers of Waiting to Exhale came back together and did Waiting to Exhale 2016 and included a lesbian character. Um, I'm going to pot up my nephew here, Kenny. And I'd love to end the show with a discussion on love. And what are your thoughts on marriage? What does marriage mean to you?
5: Um, more like basically committing yourself to him or her.
3: Committing like how?
5: Like your lifestyle. You just <laughs> got to include that person in your everyday, daily basis.
3: Is marriage scary to you? I mean you're twenty 23, 23, right? twenty three turning twenty three right? Yeah, in July. And so at that age, i'm I'm wondering, I mean, is it so like far in the future for you that you you can't even grasp the idea of what marriage would look like?
5: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's a long way for me. I have no plans, no plans right now.
3: what what is it scary to you the 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 thought of marriage?
5: Yeah, I mean, Really have no freedom. I think. That's my opinion. (laughs) When I'm ready to settle down, uh, I'll be there. You
3: know what's funny is like when I was 13, 14, 15, and maybe it's different for girls, but I definitely fantasize about my wedding day. So boys, or I I, I can't say boys in general eyes, but for yourself, did you ever fantasize about your wedding day?
5: Not even, but I have a friend that always talks to me about her wedding. (laughs) And... She, like, gets into details, and I'm just like, can you get a boyfriend first? <laughs>
3: <laughs> wow, this is so, so, so interesting. <laughs> so, you know, you obviously have lived through this lifetime of being able to witness something extremely historical, the country uh, moving in the right direction and making it legal for same-sex couples to get married, Um You know, what was that like for you for someone who is your age, uh, who's heterosexual, who, you know, you may not have 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 thought about it. I mean, you don't even think about marriage to begin with, Uh, you know, to you. Was it that big of a deal that people were
5: making? To me, no. I mean, I just love is just love. I mean, if it's there, it's there, you know.
3: Did you, did friends of yours even did was it even like talk among amongst your like circle like where people were your 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 friends like oh my gosh you know why do gay people want to get married or what did you not even talk about it?
5: Um, it, that never really came upon us. Like every time we had like conversations with my friends and I, like, yeah, it's I mean, it's like whatever. Yeah, I mean, I get it. Yeah.
3: I truly do. So, so is it news to you that when I tell you there are adults who are fighting over this concept of marriage between same sex, sex same sex couples that it it's not natural and they don't they don't they disagree with it because you know so I say say someone like Manny Pacquiao right mm-hmm. that our family you know uh, ten they I think that some of our family members are big fans of Manny Pacquiao as a boxer uh, maybe no yeah yeah I mean, yeah I mean. yeah. Right? when 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 a guy like him who's supposed to just do what he does be a great incredible boxer when he goes up and he starts talking about how he doesn't believe in gay marriage, i mean do you are you just like okay like does that even does that phase you
5: um not really i mean it i mean everyone has their own you know beliefs you know but i mean it it does make him that com if he did actually make that comment—it would actually make him look bad in in the media, you know.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, he, yeah, he—he he has you know, Nike pulled.
5: Yeah, I heard. About yeah,
3: that. from him. And uh, but, like, say for example, for you that you know we just talked about how, you know, gay marriage and marriage in general doesn't necessarily the the topic itself isn't really topic of mind for someone like you, but when it becomes controversy, when it becomes someone that wants to take away a right or discriminate against another person. I mean, do you understand why Nike would pull uh, their sponsorship of Manny Pacquiao?
5: I mean, it, it it's like a fan base. Like, he loses, I'm pretty sure he has fans that are, you know, gay, bi, you know, yeah. that actually look up to him. And it after that comment, Nike, it's just gonna make that company look bad sponsoring that, you know, Manny Pacquiao. Yeah. So
3: I didn't mean to put you on the spotlight. I mean, I just wanted to get your thoughts. Like I talk about this every day. You're starting to learn about, you know, uh, these issues that's in the news and the media, um, at, so, at some point, I wonder, from your perspective as a young person, a um, millennial, <laughs> do you think that adults are just really, you know, I don't want to use the word anal, but I know you know what that means. Um, <laughs> do you think that they're just like, just, what do you think of it? Is it embarrassing to you? Is it funny? Is it weird? Are they, do you think that they're just like wasting time griping over this stuff?
5: Um, To me, no. Um, It's, you know, You try to fight for your rights. It's, I don't know, it's all to me. It's just whatever. I'm just here trying to make a living.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, yes, but we do want it to be a much more um, equal place for everyone, right? And so that was the whole point of like, you know, when you hear people who try to discriminate um, against another group by saying, it's not what they believe in. Well, you know, let's really talk about that. Because even our first guest today, Stephen, has written an entire book. He's a, an, a you know, has studied ideologies and uh, theology and has done the homework to provide for us the fact that, you will, even in like Byzantine time, like medieval times, there were homosexual acts that had occurred that people had accepted. Um, so in today's time to to reject that and say it didn't exist it's unnatural it's not traditional by whose definition uh i think that that you know it's okay to have different beliefs so long as we're tolerant and we um are treated equally
5: that's a big word equally <laughs> yeah,
3: that is the word equally <laughs> Well, thank you for joining me on this conversation and allowing for me to talk about the reasons why being inclusive is a great thing. So if like Waiting to Exhale had actually created another uh, version that included a lesbian voice, then it would really be be meeting our needs for, you know, the 2016 year. Um, because we all actually go through kind of similar things. You're afraid of commitment at 23 years old. <laughs> uh 22 23 i'm afraid of commitment i think the idea the thought of saying i do forever and ever like forever is scary to me i don't know if that's like facebook thing and social media thing it doesn't it makes you like not want to think about the future it just makes you like think about today but um but see we share something in common yes we did (laughs) (laughs) hey thanks everyone for tuning in today if you'd like to share your thoughts head to michelle And uh, hit the about button. There's a contact page for you to send you your thoughts. Or if, hey, you want to be a guest on the show, be a guest on the show. Uh, Like I said earlier, all of my content is posted at michellemeow.com, And that includes the television shows. So I'm out for today. I'm headed to go interview Susan Sarandon. I'll make sure that I share that interview with you as soon as I can. Uh, We'll talk to you. We'll see you tomorrow at 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time, the same time. Thank you. Thank you.